This is Elena DelVal, and this is the Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations HispanicMPR.com podcast. My guest is Javier Delgado, who is founder of People2 LLC. We will discuss the global employee engagement crisis. Javier is also the Chief Executive Officer of People2 LLC, a global human resources and management consulting firm. He is a certified business and executive coach, trainer, and speaker. He is considered one of the top 100 coaches worldwide, according to GlowCoach.com in Shanghai, China. He has over 35 years of experience in senior human resources management positions in the Fortune 500. Javier, welcome. Thank you. Hi, Ellen. How are you? I am very curious about this topic. Thank you. What do we mean when we say, let's just start at the beginning, by an employee engagement? Before we even talk about a crisis, what do we mean when we say employee engagement? Well, employee engagement um, uh, is a a good question to start off with. A lot of people have a lot of different um, definitions for this. It's like the word quality. It's kind of thrown around a lot in different articles and speeches and talks. But engagement is when a, an employee, uh, a member of an organization is doing a job uh, or a task and is completely committed, involved, um, and motivated to do the job at hand and to do it um, in a way that he or she is completely focused on a goal and getting that goal done. How do we measure that? How do we know where employee engagement is at any one time? The way you know is... It has to do with what you observe, what you see in your employee base. Um, The attitudes that you observe, the behavior that you observe is a key indicator. It's very hard to put a number on that. So a lot of organizations, what they do is they do employee surveys and They say, if we do this employee survey, we're going to analyze the results, and these results will tell us that either our employees are engaged, meaning that they're involved, committed, motivated to do a job, and it shows in their attitude and behavior, or they're not. However, that has been falsely uh, believed. It's been a misnomer over the last 20, 25 years. So... To sum up, the answer is you have to observe it, you have to feel it, and you have to see it. That's how you might have a notion of a committed, engaged employee. It used to be that people aspired to become an employee, certainly of large corporations. There were certain companies that had outstanding benefits and everybody wanted to work for them. That has changed. The benefits have eroded sometimes 
to very little, sometimes almost nothing. Do you think that is having an impact on this engagement that we're talking about? It has, yes, I think so. Because, as you know, what I call the loyalty uh, factor, the loyalty equation has changed, I guess, in the last 30, 40 years. And it started back in the 80s and 90s when uh, the first round of layoffs and downsizing and, and the word downsizing and, and layoffs and restructuring became part of the ordinary daily economic life of uh, business. So you had people that wanted to be part of big corporations, but as this type of environment took place, what happened is that they were shocked when they received a message saying that effective next month, you know, we're restructuring or we got bought out and your job is discontinued or eliminated. So as more of this happened, people in the workplace, in the workforce, started realizing that, hey, you know what? The company that I've been loyal to for many years and that I thought I was going to retire, it's not going to happen because they really just didn't really value what I was doing. And so that started a feeling in the workplace, in the global workplace, that I have to look out for myself. And when an employee looks out for himself or herself, it could basically put engagement on a second level, not his his or her priority. His or her priority would be, how can I survive and make more money? What other factors do you think are influencing employee engagement? Or are there other factors in affecting employee engagement? Yeah. Um, obviously, uh, the attitude towards work, uh, a common, common um, uh, a factor that you see and you hear in a culture, in a company culture where you have a, a disengaged workplace or employees is when you ask an employee to please either stay for a couple hours to finish a project or to come in early or to travel when the person just came back from a prior trip and to travel again, and when you start, you know, hearing or seeing, you know, nudges in the shoulder, or I don't know if I could do this, or, you know, I'm kind of busy, and I can't do it, I got an appointment, when you start hearing and seeing this kind of like, you know, this ad, this attitude like, I really can't do all this, and remember, I get paid by the hour, or, you know, basically... I have something to do on the weekend with my family. All these little nuances kind of indicate that there could be disengagement. Um, the proverbial, hey, at Friday at 5 o'clock, I am out of here and make sure that my check is in my bank account. If that's the number one priority of that particular workplace and people that work in there, most probably you have an engagement problem because the person will not go the extra mile to actually be part of a company loyal person that does go the extra mile for the company. So that's a big factor. Uh, you know, 
the person's what they call work-life balance? There's a lot of value in the new generation in the workforce on the gig economy. Yes. Tell us a little bit about that and the effect that it has on employee engagement because, of course, these are outside consultants or short-term workers, perhaps. How does that affect employee engagement? Well, you'd be surprised that um, a lot of the uh, players in the gig economy, for example, consultants, contractors, uh, and I take myself as uh, in that in that group, okay, that's doing work in the workplace today. Since there is an underlying uh, interest to either keep a client or or basically satisfy a client or a an association or an institution, there is a lot of engagement in the gig economy from these type of players, uh, contractors, uh, part-timers, uh, you know, seasonal workers, because uh, they know that it's only for a period of time. The disengagement issue comes into play when you had a, a full-time or a full a part-time regular employee where the person is feeling a disloyalty now to the company and become disengaged. Now, there's a lot of factors why people become disengaged, you know, but the major factors that I have seen, and this is in every part of the world, is when somebody is recognized and for their achievement and their fulfillment and their work is recognized um, in the company or in the organization, that goes farther to uh, get engagement done or completed or fulfilled than any other factor that you might think of. So it's really an intrinsic factor that causes engagement to, to, to actually happen. How does that relate to issues like the layoffs and offshoring and these gig workers who come in for the short term that some permanent employees may feel are stealing work away from them? Tell us a little bit about that, if you would. Uh, That's been happening uh, over the last, you know, 20, 30 years at a rapid pace. Um, And if you look at the... um, at the market today, uh, one of the largest phenomenons that's happening, or that has happened, uh, Elena has been the uh, uh, staffing companies that provide short-term workers, you know, on an ad-need basis. Uh, so if you're a manager running an operation and you're seeing a lot of turnover in your ranks because of maybe many factors, but let's say disengagement, let's say that uh, you know, you've had some high turnover in different positions. You might just opt to forget a permanent employee and go to a staffing company and hire a, a part-time contractor that you can have for two weeks and then, uh, you know, send them home in two weeks and then in another month come back and bring them back. So if companies are in a tight competitive marketplace, which just about everybody is in every industry, 
you need to look at the labor costs because that is the largest cost in your organization, the cost of labor. Labor and benefits make up the biggest percentage of the overall operational expense. So, yes, the fact that there's been an offshoring, there's been restructuring and layoffs has given way to the contract, the gig worker, the seasonal worker, and a lot of those workers are very engaged when they come into these companies to do work. There's also been a group of workers who have retired and are coming back sometimes into the labor force, either to their old companies or are reinventing themselves and working in other capacities, sometimes as volunteers, sometimes as paid workers. What would you tell us about that? Well, if you go to any, uh, if you've been to any of the fast food restaurants lately, um, and um, you go to the counter, you know, you might see uh, a high percentage of middle-aged or, you know, or uh, retired uh, workers, uh, whether female or male, that are basically uh, doing customer service or flipping hamburgers. Or you go to uh, a retail store in any mall today, you'll see a blend of, you know, Gen Y and Z uh, workers with a uh, a good contingent of uh, mature workers, workers that are probably retired in their mid-60s or even their 70s that really need to make ends meet. And since they have a work ethic, uh, which is a little bit different than the younger generations, uh, they actually are very successful uh, in customer service. So you see a lot of good blending of young and mature workers in the workplace today. That's a key factor. And if you're, a uh, again, a hiring manager, you need to find the best person that will take care of your customer. Would you paint a picture for us of what global employee engagement is today and what it might have been in the past, perhaps five years or ten years ago, whichever period you think helps us understand what the situation is today and how it's changed? Well, uh, as we talked a little bit earlier about the uh, let's just call it the traditional economy uh, where, you know, you would have a, uh, a workforce population of permanent full-time and permanent part-time employees. And, um, and, you know, those would be your go-to people or the ones that uh, brought your company from this foundation to where they are today. However, over the past 30 years, if you go to any part of the world, you know, you're going to see um, different type of people. You're going to see uh, contingent workers. You're going to see seasonal workers. You're going to see uh, a mobility and a mesh of different cultures because of immigration being also a major factor in the world today. And um, so you might go to Germany and you might have been served a beer by somebody from the Middle East. Or you might go to Brazil and, and find somebody that's basically uh, from uh, um, Africa because there is just a cross-pollination of travel and workers across the world. And a lot of these workers 
are not permanent workers. They're basically temporary seasonal workers. That has changed dramatically uh, the workforce of many companies around the globe. And what, how, they, how they do that is they have staffing companies that actually seek people in different regions of the world based on uh, traits and behavioral traits that uh, they've been able to explore and, and research. For example, if you are you're in Silicon Valley in California, the high percentage of Hindu and Indians that are electrical engineers and software engineers is extremely high compared to other nationalities in different parts of the world. So all of this has changed the way you staff your companies today. Can you tell us more about the engagement levels of employees today and how they compare with employee engagement in past years? Yes. You know, um, I saw a poll, um, the company uh, Gallup, which a lot of folks have seen some surveys and polls from them. Um, They've been tracking this over the last 20, 25 years. And um, what it shows is that on a global basis, I think 13% of employees from the last, you know, study they did were engaged worldwide. That is an extremely low and poor engagement percentage factor. In the United States and the U.S. workforce population, it's about a third that are engaged. Uh, so that means that two-thirds of the folks that are working either are disengaged in working or they basically are working because they have to and they probably don't like their job and they're probably waiting to jump to some other position. So lately there's been a lot of disenchantment that continues to be. And really, if you look at the at the reasons why, is that a lot of companies – don't know how to actually go about putting together an engagement strategy for their organizations because they kind of rely on a very simple employee survey that are very easy to put together. If you go to SurveyMonkey, you put together 10 questions, you put it out, and you can have a survey back within 48 hours and, and the results. However, the questions that are asked are the key things, okay? It's not that we have a great cafeteria, the food is good, the air conditioner is great. You know, uh, those are some of the things that go on these type of surveys. Are you happy? Are you unhappy? You know, do you like our handbook? You don't like our handbook? Do you like our policies? You know, and these type of things give you a false sense of engagement, okay? So based on that, um, based on these surveys being non-scientific and not well-planned, answers a lot of the, the reasons why these percentages are so high in the workplace today. So that kind of gives you a notion. Uh, like I said before, engagement comes from intrinsic motivational factors. Okay, not salary, not benefits, but achievement, fulfillment, having resources to work, uh, being basically tapped to do a special project, being recognized for many things that you're measuring inside the company. This is what causes engagement of somebody 
with an organization. These intrinsic motivators and sometimes management teams fly over this and step to the simple employee survey, which is very tactical and doesn't answer the real true engagement factors. So you said earlier that the engagement level worldwide is about 13%. In the United yeah. States, it's about 33%? Yeah, about a third, 33%. Why is there such a difference between the worldwide engagement level and that it's so much higher in the United States? Well, I think it's uh, a good question. Um, um, I could probably ask Gallup that, but I think the answer is this. In many countries, in Latin America and in Asia, um, the word engagement is, is still fairly new, okay? It's fairly a new concept. Uh, you know, in, in, in the Western world, in the UK, Europe, and, uh, and in the United States, you know, this, start, this engagement kind of uh, practice of engaging people and, and measuring that and, and putting together programs for the workforce has been fairly common. But if you go to some places in, uh, in the Middle East and Asia and South America, um, these, um, these um, uh, surveys and, and the way people think about it is not as developed yet. And that's my personal opinion, that probably the numbers are, are not reflective of what the uh, disenchantment is. And remember also that in a lot of these uh, third world regions, let's just call them third world or in via of development, uh, a lot of these folks have no other choices but to stay where they're at. They don't have a robust economic engine like in the Western countries, like the United States and, and England and Europe. So their, their, their choices are limited. Therefore, uh, you know, they might not come up in a, in a survey. And third and secondly, a lot of the folks in these other regions are not as vocal as one would be in the West, where it's more of an egalitarian society uh, that we have here in the United States and in Western Europe. So that's my personal opinion on that numbers. Now, one-third of the employee population being engaged, that still sounds very low to me. Oh, it's low, very low. How does that compare to, say, 10 years ago? Well, you know, uh, it hasn't really changed that much, um, you know, because it, it kind of remains steady, and every time you kind of, it inches up, or in the press, in the, in the press, I mean, in the, in the newspaper, in the media, uh, people hear about downsizing, uh, basically more H-1B visas, replacing, you know, local folks and local engineers because of the price of an engineer from India could be 20, 25% less than an engineer in the United States. Whenever you have a lot of that uptick in the environment, it impacts people's psyche. And when they get a chance to answer any type of questions around engagement, they always come back with dissatisfaction. Even though 30% is low, it, it hasn't dropped um, because there are some good companies, Elena, that uh, are realizing that in order to engage employees, they have to do just a lot more 
than what they've been doing. Just a lot more than uh, merit increases or a lot more than, uh, you know, a nice uh, cafeteria, like I said, food or, or a nice office. Those are all good factors, but those are extrinsic. You know, they're palpable to everybody. But remember, in this engagement or engagement is a very personal um, feeling. And that feeling is going to produce an output. And that output is either going to help or not help an organization, whether it be a project on time, whether it be the quality of the project. So, you know, this is, you know, when HR executives get together with senior management, engagement is a long-term process, and it has to be put in place by uh, executives that understand, you know, what they need to do to make it part of the complete strategy of the organization, okay? Uh, it is not just for HR to do, because the people that are engaging with executives are the workforce. Those are the ones that uh, basically uh, you need to get in front of, uh, executives and the workers. So I think maybe that kind of answers that, that particular question, kind of a little bit rambling here, but... Um, Hope you get the point. Well, we we started out this conversation saying that there's an employee engagement crisis. What defines that? What takes us from a 33% engagement level, which you're saying is not extraordinary, to being in a customer in, a, in an employee engagement crisis? Well. The um, the marketplace today in any industry, no matter what it is, is extremely competitive. Everybody is buying for an edge here and an edge there. Sometimes products are very similar, okay? And it costs money to differentiate product A from product B. But what can make a difference in a company and what can make a difference in retaining clients and customers are the people that you have inside your organization. Those are the folks that managers and executives and owners depend on to grow their companies. So the fact that you have high dissatisfaction is a threat or a crisis to the success of a organization or a venture, okay? Uh, the better your people are engaged and the better of a culture, inclusive culture that you have in your company, then I would say that you probably have a better chance or, or an edge over somewhat another organization that doesn't have that. And that will give you an edge on retaining a customer or acquiring a new customer. So if that's what business is all about, service and retaining and acquiring new customers, okay, providing a, a good uh, service and a good product, then your people have to be delivering that. And not having that, to me, is a crisis. But at what point does it become a crisis? Is it the 33% Engagement level? 
Well, How do you know? I, I would not put a number and say this is a crisis uh, from this number on. Uh, this These numbers kind of indicate that there's a lot of unhappy people uh, doing work out there, okay? And and the output of the quality of work is, is a very, very important. And what the a lot of the studies that I've read tell me is that uh, the more engaged that your workforce is, it will translate, translate, maybe not in quarter one or quarter two, but maybe over a period of time it will translate in financial gain, whether it be stock price, whether it be profitability, whether it be efficiencies, whether it be retention. Uh, it will show up in many ways. Uh, so the 33 or 30% um, engagement rate just goes to show out of, you know, 100 that there's a lot of folks out there that are not happy with their work and that management is not really addressing the real needs of the workforce. So what does that mean in practical terms to the bottom line, whether it, it's for publicly traded or privately held companies? Yeah, it could mean uh, um, what I've seen as research and study is that uh, engagement might add uh, maybe uh, a couple of percentage points to uh, profitability. Uh, it could uh, lower um, employee turnover uh, by a few points. Uh, and remember, employee turnover is another high cost because there's cost of exiting employees out and there's cost of onboarding new employees into the company. So it lowers that employee turnover. It lowers that cost. So I would say that, I don't know, give or take uh, two to five percentage points uh, overall in profitability. I would feel, feel pretty comfortable saying that. And, of course, the question that these companies are going to ask next is, well, so is that a price worth paying for a greater profit if they are able to outsource? Or lately there's a lot of talk of using machines to replace people yes. and things like cars and trucks and warehouses and more. Well, I'll tell you, the uh, artificial intelligence, um, and I've been really uh, researching that, Elena, obviously you've seen uh, these high uh, automated factories, which basically started back in the 80s, you know, when the Japanese started, you know, um, selling cars in the United States, the Toyotas and the Nissans and all that. What gave them the edge over the American manufacturers, if you recall, was just-in-time manufacturing, and every time you felt or saw a car made from Japan, this is back then when they first started, you can see the difference in the, uh, the different seams of an automobile. The seams were, the gaps of those seams were micro, micro millimeters compared to cars built in other parts of the world because of the efficiencies of robots in the manufacturing process. Now we're talking about artificial intelligence where you have major automotive 
manufacturing plants in Europe, BMW, Mercedes, Tesla, you know, basically run by robots and you have one person monitoring that. So whatever it is that the business model takes, because you need to be able to make changes on a fly, okay? That's good leadership when you do that. you got to know when to do that. So if you have people monitoring a new manufacturing facility that's been automated by robots, you know, maybe, you know, the actual feasibility study said, yeah, that's the way to go. But I have to tell you, if you have 10 people monitoring those robots, we hope they're engaged. Okay. What happens next? Let's say that we are in the midst of an engagement crisis, as we started discussing at the beginning. Yeah. And what is the path to the future? Well, you know, I think to look at engagement, companies need to look at engagement as not just, it's not just a metric, you know, um, but it has to be uh, based on what's important in the culture that you're trying to create in your company, okay? Uh, it's how you do things inside an organization. If you're going to do a survey, okay, an employee survey, do one that has questions that are open-ended, that are behavioral-type questions, that ask for opinions, okay, from the workforce. So you have a better idea of what's making people tick inside your company. Very important, okay? Uh, You want to do an engagement program, no matter how many employees you have, whether you have 10, 1, or 50, or 5,000. The engagement program has to be over a period of time. I would say between two and three years to see how behavioral, how behavior changes, how attitude changes in your workforce. See your, uh, you need to take metrics. You know, you need to understand how many customers have we retained? How many new customers have we acquired? You know, is our profitability up or down? All those things, all these metrics should be looked at quantitatively and qualitatively. So what I'm saying is that it's got to be a more comprehensive approach to engaging people in the workplace, not just a one-shot, once-a-year survey, you know, which most companies have, and everybody says, hey, it looks like we're doing pretty good, you know, and they move on to the next thing. So what I'm saying is that to improve those numbers, okay, you have to take a holistic and more deeper approach to what makes employees take inside your company. Why are they there? Do they like being there? At the risk of playing devil's advocate, does that ever happen? Are there companies who take the trouble to find out how to improve their work environment? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, there's a lot of companies. I've worked for many in my career. Uh, myself, where, for example, I've worked, uh, I'll mention some that I've worked for. I've worked for some very highly respected companies like uh, Gillette, who is now part of Procter & Gamble, a 3M company, uh, Black & Decker out of uh, Towson, Maryland. These are companies that, when I worked there, I felt engaged. Why did I feel engaged? Because they asked me for my opinion. 
okay? It wasn't like uh, just a, you know, let's ask uh, Mr. Delgado, see what he thinks about this new product. You know, it was really they, they had you or they had the employees uh, tell them what they felt, you know, what did they think. Um, they uh, gave employees projects, important projects to be part of. Um, notwithstanding, pay was good. Benefits were good, okay? That has to be, you know, part of the program. You know, those have to be satisfactory, okay? But that by itself will not get me engaged. What will get me engaged is the ability to participate, the uh, the ability to uh, have resources to, to participate, to do a project, the ability to for me to say my opinion and to be taken seriously. So, both those things together, and I have to say, from my experience in my career, that a lot of good companies, mostly the big ones, but not all the big ones, um, you know, do have uh, very good cultures because they really try every day for their executives to engage the people that work for them. So, um, you know, it doesn't have to do with size. It has to do with the attitude of management. That is the key. Would you give us some examples? Say, for example, what would you say in the United States are the companies, the top ten companies with the best employee engagement? Oh, well, you know, um, let's say a 3M company up in St. Paul, Minnesota. You have a company like... Um, there's a company in um, San Francisco called Fiber, who is a startup over the you know last four or five years. They've started up. Uh, they're into the app development world, you know, trying to monetize uh, applications. Uh, they have a global culture that um, they're trying to integrate, and they work at it, and they know they want to do it, and they know they have to do it. So it's not only that they have it, but they're trying to achieve it. That's just as important. Uh, you have another couple, the big ones, you know, uh, the IBMs, uh, the Black and Deckers, the Gillettes, you know, these are all great companies that people feel proud to work for and, and wear their badge. Uh, and so, you know, those are some examples of companies that take the time to really cultivate their cultures and the culture is what makes everything work, how everything works together inside a company. AT&T could be another one. I don't want to omit. There's a whole host of good companies out there. Which are the worst companies with the lowest engagement? <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, there, there's quite a few, um, but... Um, you know, I don't know if I, you know, want to say one or the other, but there was a lot of, um, I've, many years ago, I was involved in the energy business, and I worked for some, the energy sector, uh, you know, public energy uh, sector, like, you know, like electrical companies. Uh, there's a lot of uh, grief uh, in that sector in general. Um you know, I just, you know, kind of leave it at that. Uh, there are some companies who are, you know, mid-sized companies are in the, 
uh, hospitality business that are also, uh, you know, companies that don't cultivate their culture. And it's really amazing because hospitality is customer service. You know, that's kind of like uh, uh, the word synonymous for that word. And there's a lot of, um, you know, the lodging business and the hotel business who, when you walk up to uh, get a room or you have a reservation, you know, you completely are ignored uh, for many, many minutes, <laughs> you know, before they uh, get to you. So I've had some bad experiences in the lodging sector and the energy sector, just to name a couple. Is the, for example, the issue in the lodging sector related to the very frequent rotation of staff where they're moved from one location to another and the reliance? I've heard a lot about reliance and increasing reliance on temporary employees such as interns. Uh, my experience doesn't. Uh, experience that by um, my opinion on that is that it has a lot to do with um, downsizing and um, job loading job loading meaning that you know when you uh, release and you when you restructure uh, and then the job needs to be done. That was done by 20. Now the job needs to be done is done by 10. So that's what I call by job loading, and that causes uh, frustration. It causes, uh, you know, sometimes anger, and people that are just cannot produce the results they were producing before. That way, in the lodging business, you people forget certain things in your room, whether it be amenities, they're not there, take too too long to get back to the person in the room that needs service, uh, bad quality food, you know, uh, long time to check in or check out, uh, a very curt attitude. So job loading, when you restructure in the lodging business and then you bring in some um, seasonal workers, but Sometimes you just got to restructure, and the first people that are left have to do the job that were done by 20 now or 10. That, to me, causes a lot of disengagement and a lot of uh, frustration and bad service. What further steps can our listeners take to better understand these concepts of employee engagement and this employee engagement crisis that we're discussing? Yeah, I, I, I think a, a very uh, easy step to take is to, um, number one, uh, interface with your workers as often as possible. That's very simple to do, you know. Um, you know, organizations uh, and, and workers sometimes don't see their supervisors or don't see their their higher ups or senior management. And so, the first thing I would I would kind of uh, you know have them do or a tip would be walk around, see what's going on in the, on the floor. If it's a manufacturing facility, if it's a 
you know, if it's a hotel or if it's a power plant or whatever, uh, be visible. See what's going on. See how the work gets done. Okay. Uh, the other thing I would ask them to do is create some instruments, questions, good open behavioral questions that are confidential in nature and have town hall meetings and explain why you're doing this so that people will buy into it and actually answer, uh, you know, truthfully so that you can get a good read on how people feel working for you or for senior management or for company X. Okay. And, uh, third, once you start a process like that, give periodic updates on where you're at because culture doesn't change in a month or in a day or in a quarter. It's a ever uh, developing process. But if people see, the workers see that the company's serious about engagement, serious about a healthy culture, they will basically start engaging in a different way, meaning they're going to be focused, they're going to be committed, they're going to be motivated, they're going to go into work on time, they're going to go the extra mile when asked to. That's what I I mean by that. Tell us about the role or the importance of diversity in the workforce and how it relates to this engagement issue, meaning depending on where you're coming from culturally, are there differences, whether it's by age, generation, gender, country of origin, or culture, etc.? What, if anything, do you see? um, Yes. Culturally, let's talk a little bit about culturally uh, regions of the world. For example, I think I, I mentioned before that in the West, Western countries, Western European countries, uh, Western Hemisphere, uh, meaning North America and Canada, the United States and Canada, it's more of an egalitarian society, meaning that you're going to be able to get an answer, whether it be good, bad, or indifferent from someone, uh, because um, the culture here promotes openness and promotes opinion, uh, promotes um, the ability to uh, to say what you feel. Different from Asian cultures, where you will not get the same. They're more hierarchical cultures, culture, uh, a lot of patriarch, uh, patri- uh, patriarchal. Okay, where in the same meeting that you have with a bunch of folks here in the United States or Canada, the same way you conduct the meeting here, you probably will not be able to conduct it in Japan or in Asia because the culture in Asia is not egalitarian. It's more separate. There's a higher power distance. So you're not going to get in Asia, hey, Elena, why don't you stand up and tell us about your project on your trip to the Philippines, that probably won't happen because the the culture in Asia is more reserved. 
it's more introvert, and there's a different type of connotation that workers have as opposed to senior managers or people above them. Here in the United States or in Canada or in the UK or in Germany, you know, you'll rattle off all the facts and figures of your trip, and a discussion will start where there's a lot of different opinions back and forth. So, yes, diversity is a big factor because a lot of folks in uh, power distance cultures like uh, Middle East and Asia, India, uh, are, are, might have a hard time answering surveys uh, because they're not used to basically putting their opinion on paper or their opinion verbally to somebody uh, that's asking them a question. So diversity in cultures is extremely important. Does that affect the work environment? If you have a very diverse work environment, you, by definition, are going to have to put more effort into understanding the different segments. How do you deal with that in order to foment greater engagement? Well, you have to... uh, um, there is a, um, uh, years ago I used to do, uh, when I was in corporate, uh, recently I've put together a proposal for an organization that has a global workforce and, um, they have a communication issue, uh, uh, between different world regions. And you need to understand the culture of the region opposed to your own culture. So you have to really understand your culture, you know, my culture, your culture, and understand the culture of the other person, and you have to know when to change, when to change, to be able to connect and communicate, okay? So um, if you have, um, for example, a person... Uh, from South America, uh, who comes up to the United States on an expat package, for example. Let's just hypothetically make this example. We're, we're in the middle of a Me Too movement here, okay? You've heard about that extensively in the media and the marketplace today, the Me Too movement. You bring up an executive from Brazil or from Argentina or the Southern Cone, okay, from South America. You bring them up. And the first thing that I would do, I would provide that person and his family a cultural training on diversity of what he can expect here and what he should refrain from doing. Okay? Um, Because why? Because if it's a person from, let's say, Brazil, the person will come up and in the first meeting... They're very touchy-feely people. Uh, you know, they look at the Me Too movement with different eyes. And so you need to really make sure the person understands those um, dogmas or those protocols in order for that person to be successful in this new environment in the United States. That goes to understanding culture, understanding the U.S. culture, and understanding the culture where your expat is coming from. Very important. Uh, in my career, I've had many instances where 
We've brought executives from very, very, um, how can I say, cultures that do not look at the gender differences as much as we do here in the United States and Canada. And it could, uh, it could basically, uh, get some, uh, run into some problems on the legal front as far as, uh, employment labor is concerned. What are the, the no-nos? What are the red flags that employees and employers need to be wary of in relation to this issue? Personal space, um, is a key, you know, factor. Um, personal space around your, your body. There is a six to 12 inch circular space around your body that I would recommend be respected, uh, in the workplace today at all levels, at all levels. Um, and again, you know, um, understanding, uh, who you're addressing, understanding your audience, whether it be a group of five people in a meeting or 500 people or an individual, you know, just the fact that there are so many diverse cultures now in, in, in the workplace today, you need to be cognizant of that. You know, you need to be a smart leader, uh, and a sensitive leader so that you can actually connect, connect your message to that person. Is there anything else beyond personal space? Well, uh, I'll say language, you know, uh, nonverbals are also, uh, as you might imagine, very, very important. So your verbal acumen and also your nonverbal, uh, the nonverbals that are being put out by the individuals are very critical. So verbal, nonverbal, personal space, uh, those are three big ones. What resources would you point our listeners toward, whether it's websites or books, uh, perhaps groups, where they can gain a better understanding of this issue and best practices? Yeah. Um, obviously, um, there are some some websites um, that are kind of geared towards uh, human capital, you know, human capital development, human capital doctrines. Um, one is um, the Human Capital Institute, HCI, and, and that is a, you know, hci.com. Uh, they have a lot of articles and uh, blogs uh, on this type of um, uh, you know, a topic and content on this type of topic. Uh, there's also a, uh, I don't know if you've heard or maybe your audience have heard of, uh, there's a section of Deloitte and Touche called the Breslin, uh, blog, uh, which is dedicated to human capital completely. Uh, it's a kind of like a, a division of the Deloitte and Touche called Breslin the Breslin blog. Um, and uh, there's a book called The Waves of Culture. Uh, that's the title of the book. And the author is Franz, um, I'm going to probably uh, make a massacre of his name, Franz 
um, Pompernaus, and he is a Dutch social scientist that has done studies on the different cultural uh, factors in different parts of the world. Um, you know, he studied Asian culture, Western culture, uh, basically Middle East, and you can really, after reading this book, you can kind of really understand where somebody's coming from. If that person's from South America, from Asia, from Canada, and from Middle East countries. Uh, so Franz Pompernaus, um, and I can get you the name, you know, the correct spelling via email, but the title is called The Waves of Culture. Uh, are there any other resources that you think are essential? Um, I, you know, those are good ones, but uh, there's also a uh, the Society of Human Resource Management uh, website. Um, you have to become a member of that, but it's called SHRM, which is very, very well known around the world in the United States, like 20,000 members. Uh, they have very, very uh, in-depth um, articles and topics on human capital engagement, um, you know, employee relations, which is part of engagement. And um, in and, and that world of, of human behavior, um, that's another site, the SHRM site, Society of Human Resource Managers. Um, SHRM.com is another website for that. Um, so you have two good ones there, plus this book. And uh, if you can look those up, those are great, great sources. Thank you, Javier, for joining us from Weston, Florida. Thank you, Elena, for having me. I appreciate it. And to our audience, you have been listening to Javier Delgado, who is founder of People2 LLC, who discussed the global employee engagement crisis. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicNPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at HispanicNPR.com. That's editor at HispanicNPR.com.